You're listening to an Imagine More podcast. The presentation you're about to hear was recorded as part of the 2021 Get That Good Life Conference. We've split this session into three parts. This is part one. Hi, my name is Max. I will like to introduce you Milton Tully. Milton lives in the USA. He helps people with disability to have a strong work roles. He has been doing this for many years. Milton helps people in work roles will be more conclusive. He showed them how to create work roles to suit each person. He work is based on SRV. Milton will show us how to get a jump set up right of a start. Today, Milton will be talking about doing a good job and getting a good job in unemployment. I hope you enjoy listening to Milton. Thank you, Max and Jan, and good morning, everyone. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here to present information about open employment and why this is an important approach for addressing historically high levels of unemployment or underemployment for people with disabilities. I wanna take a couple of minutes and describe how I came to be interested in this cause. In the late 70s, I was a high school special education teacher. And while I loved my work and I really cared about my students, after aging out of school, most were headed home to lives of idleness. So I left teaching. And instead, I began working in the work activity center of a local sheltered workshop, taking my former students who'd been sitting at home with me. But soon I became restless again. I was discouraged by the general lack of work available, the lack of fitting and challenging work for the people on my crew, not to mention the embarrassingly low pay that they were receiving. Now, I wasn't the only person there who was discouraged, and I came to learn from a visiting pass evaluation team that it didn't matter how much those of us at the workshop wanted things to be better, that the real problems were embedded in a flawed model of service. So this desire to do something better fortunately coincided with a new progressive regional disability director who provided funds for a number of us from a parent-teacher group to travel to different parts of the U.S. and to visit and study a number of early versions of what came to be known in the United States as supported employment and what I'll be referring to today as open employment. As a result, an organization called Community Employment was developed, and we began assisting people to get jobs where everybody else was getting jobs in the summer of 1981. So ever since then, I've been involved in either providing open employment services or teaching about it, or at times, both at the same time. 
the two primary formational and foundational pieces of my learning have been through my affiliation with Mark Golden Associates and through study and teaching of social role valorization theory. I've had opportunity to opportunity to work with many amazing people and learn from them. Professionals, people with disabilities and their families, and business people. So this event is centered on things that I've learned to be helpful through the years, hoping you find them interesting and useful too. So I'm here to inform, not to persuade or twist arms. So in that light, I'm hoping that the presentation will provide clarity on these points that have been so helpful to me. So now I'm really interested in getting a sense of who's in the room with me today. And so I have a poll, and I'd like you to mark which of these describes you best. Um, and if it's more than one, just pick the one that's the reason to, that you signed up for this event today. I'm a direct support professional. I'm a university student. I'm a parent of a child or an adult with a disability. I'm an employment specialist or job coach or an employment mentor. So I'm going to be using these terms interchangeably. They're all about, are you somebody who devotes time to knowing people and helping people find suitable employment and then help them become um, assimilated in, in the workplace. That's what I mean by those three terms. I'm a family support staff person. I'm an administrator in employment services. And so we have a lot of people responding already. Thank you for that. Oh, it's wonderful to see so many parents in the room. And we have employment specialists who are assisting people with work. Yeah, and a lot of direct support professionals, administrators. Appreciate you being here too. It, it, it's always important for the people who are overseeing the work to be getting the same information as the people out in the field. Thank you for that. Lots of family members, parents, lots of people who are doing the work as direct support professionals, and a number of people in the role of employment specialist, job coach, or employment mentor. All right, excellent. So let's, let's continue. Here's how I've organized our time today. So first, we'll take a look at why employment is important for people with disabilities, followed by a brief look at some employment services that frankly just haven't worked out the way they were intended. So unwittingly perpetuating a lack of employment and or underemployment for people with disabilities. Next, we'll explore some ways that open employment has raised the bar for suitably challenging, fitting employment possibilities for people with our focus, especially on the evolution over the last 20 to 30 years in open employment. Then in this next section, I'll introduce some principles of discovery as an alternative to competitive comparative methods or traditional assessments. Then we'll look at this evolving role of the um, employment specialist or job coach or employment mentor and how that has changed over time. And, and answering this important question, when to get involved and when to step aside. And then finally, I'll introduce some concepts of customized employment where there's an intersection between the conditions, interests, and contributions of a job candidate and the needs of a business. Okay, so here we have another poll. And I just want to get an idea of your level of experience in open employment. 
So I've studied and practiced systematic instruction. I've studied and practiced discovery, natural supports, customized employment, social role valorization theory, or I haven't had, I don't have experience studying any of those, which is, which is just fine too. So let's take a couple of minutes on that. Great. We have lots of people who've studied and practiced uh, application of social role valorization theory. I'll be referring to that a bit. Like, like I said, it's one of the pieces that really got me engaged in the work. Okay. A number of people haven't studied any of the topics. That's perfectly fine. This will be something of an introduction to some of them, and I hope you'll want to learn more. Yeah, good. Some people have worked in discovery, natural supports. Yeah, that's terrific. 20% of people uh, at this point uh, know something about customized employment, have had a chance to, to give that a try. Excellent. This is very impressive. All right, very good. So this is going to be new for about half of the people, all of the topics, nothing wrong with that. So our first section, the significance and the struggle of having good employment for people with disabilities. So we're going to have a number of slides like this one that have that SRV or social role valorization magnifying glass icon. The point of this is our exploration of these ideas through the lens of a theory of practice, SRV, not just something that's my opinion, but something that's rooted in social science so that we can kind of see why things are happening the way they're happening. So around this first point, other than people who are independently wealthy, employment is an expectation for people of working age. But we know that historically, more often than not, employment has not been an expectation for people with disabilities. So this is for a difference that will be perceived in a negative way by the larger society, being just another source of people's social devaluation. The role of employee is commonly a big role, or in SRV terms, it's a role having to get bandwidth. And because possessing the employee role is an expectation, it's a common way of perceiving a person's social status and place in the world. And this applies to the self-perception of the person as well as the perception of others. So we see this all the time. A pointed question that's commonly asked in polite company is, what do you do? And you know, fairly or unfairly, after answering that question, people kind of start to size us up based on the, what they're looking for. You know, what's the name of your job? What's the nature of things you do there? What's your job title and so forth? So this ties in with something Jan said in the introduction. For those fortunate to have fitting and suitably challenging work, the role of employee also provides one important facet of having purpose in life and one important way of contributing something of oneself to others, making a positive difference in the world. And while this is something that's important for all of us, it's especially important for people with disabilities because so often I see people where so much of their life is on the receiving end of assistance while being deprived of the innate joy of contributing something of themselves to others. And of course, the type of work we have will influence our compensation and benefits and our standard of living. So it's obvious that we're deeply in the realm of what SRV theory calls the universal good things of life. 
work explicitly being one of these that's named, the role of employee opens the doors to so many additional good things in life, including the development of friendships, the possibility of access to community places, opportunities to discover and develop our abilities, skills, gifts, and talents, all additional aspects of the universal good things in life. So SRV informs us that valued social roles provide access to the good things in life. As mentioned on the previous slide, all valued roles are not equal in terms of significance. So the role of employee is a huge role, a big role, whereas bank customer may be an important role and a valued role. It's relatively small in terms of how it shapes one's life. So employee has so much impact on our lives. Another important point is that all employment roles, all jobs are not equal in terms of the opportunity to develop competencies, in terms of their status and social capital. This is a point we'll be returning to later. So here I just want to touch on an historical look at some things that have stood in the way of the role of employee for people with disabilities. No employment. The idea that employment is not possible or that it's unimportant for people with disabilities or some people with disabilities is a historical problem to employment that remains with us today, at least in the U.S. and, and I, I think most places in the world. Sheltered workshops, I can talk about these in the U.S., um, at least uh, they came about in the 50s, and they did acknowledge the importance of employment for people with disabilities, which was very important. Nonetheless, as mentioned earlier, workshops have fundamental design flaws, including the belief that these would be the only place that somebody with a disability could work or that they or that they provide readiness or preparation for employment in the outside world. Disability work crews and enclaves grew out of sheltered workshops. Typically, crews of three to six people with disabilities would perform custodial or landscaping work. The crews were supervised by a human service organization. And while in some ways they were an improvement since the work was out in the real world, they nonetheless carried forward many of the workshop's design flaws. The final issue we're going to explore that's been a persistent problem is that of arbitrary placement of people with disabilities in available work, often in work that's perceived as undesirable by others, sometimes referred to as place and prey. So this placement approach goes back more than 40 years, really to the very early efforts of what we called supported employment in the U.S. and you call open employment in Australia. Again, with very good intentions, but with what turned out to be significant design flaws within the model and its assumptions. Now, one more piece on this slide. I want, I want you to notice the asterisk notation that sheltered workshops, work crews, and the job placements all have. And it's, it's there because it's important to note that all three of these practices begin with not with person doing the tasks. This is an important distinction we'll be talking about later. So we're going to take a couple of these, not all of them, but just a couple, and look at the historical problems and examine through an SRV lens. The first is the sheltered workshop. This is not the workshop where I worked, but it looks much the same as workshops tend to do. So work is subcontracted from area employers 
starting with the work, not with the people performing the work. People are paid piece rate based on their production. So let's unpack this a little bit, examining the sheltered workshops through an SRV lens. So some of the potential causes of this it would be that the decision had already been made about who would work there. It's one of the common life experiences that Dr. Wolfensberger describes as disability being life-defining. That is, all kinds of decisions are made about a person with a disability, sometimes based on the name of the disability or the condition, such as where a person would go to school, who might be his classmates, if he would work, and if so, where, and who would be his coworkers. And then just generally low expectations for work performance, um, as was indicative of the kinds of tasks, at least, that we had to perform at the sheltered workshop where I worked. And quite possibly the belief that people with disabilities were somehow fundamentally different than non-disabled people, that people with disabilities belong together, perhaps want to be together, and wouldn't have much in common with non-disabled people. And then another potential cause is the idea that such programs create readiness for people. So this is an idea I'll return to in just a moment. Now, some of the potential costs would be that people are distanced. People with disabilities are distanced from people with a valued social status. You know, just, you know, through congregation and segregation, basically seen as all the same in terms of being de-individualized. And related to SRV's imitation and modeling, one of the ways we know that people learn best is by being surrounded by other people who are skilled in the task to be learned. But instead, here, we have people surrounded by people who are striving for competency in the same task. So in other words, it's unintentionally structured to interfere with learning. So a bit about this rethinking readiness. Um, this is an excerpt from an open employment text that was published in 1988, and it, it challenges the notion of readiness from sheltered workshops to work activity centers like where I worked and day programs. If an individual with severe disability entered the continuum in a day activity program and progressed through the continuum at the estimated average rate, he or she would spend 37 years preparing for a work activity center another 10 years in such a center before moving to a workshop, and nine more years in a regular workshop program. In other words, an individual who entered the continuum upon completing school at age 21 would begin his or her first job at age 77. Now, this is just, you know, extrapolating from different kinds of data that had been collected um, but you get the point. It's like people may move, but they didn't move very often, which takes us to this point. Who's not ready? I think this was the question that framed the movement around open employment more than 40 years ago. In other words, is it the people with disabilities that aren't ready, or is it we, the disability professionals, who aren't ready? This is a quote from this abstract of the paper exploring the impact of readiness programs or pre-vocational programs related to wages earned later on by people who had either left those programs or people who got jobs without going to a readiness program. Quote, we investigate the relationship between the receipt of pre-vocational services and subsequent hourly wages on consumers participating in supported employment programs. 
again, what you would refer to as open employment programs. Results indicate that the receipt of pre-vocational services has a negative correlation on the hourly wages of consumers. Why, I wonder? It goes on, this finding suggests that pre-vocational services may have detrimental effects on providers and consumers' expectations on consumers' workability, productivity, resulting in reduced hourly wages. Furthermore, participation of pre-vocational services serve as a signal to years about consumers' productivity. So this goes back to the um, SRV theme about mindsets and expectancies and how these are conveyed and how powerful they are for where people end up. So, you know, there's, there's been a fair amount of research about readiness and programs to prepare readiness. And what has been found is that um, certainly people are sincere in developing them, but they often haven't turned out the way that was intended. So, you know, the readiness idea continues. Um, dressed up in many contemporary forms, is illustrated by this effort to prepare high school students for the world of work by having them train in a mock CVS drugstore doing simulated work. Quote from the article, the store serves as a laboratory. This is a mock store, by the way. It's not an actual school store, but the mock store serves as a laboratory to teach retail skills to the 52 special education students enrolled. So I would say there are some key points for analysis here. You know, once again, um, beginning with the job instead of the person. So somebody's assuming that work in a CVS store would be fitting for all 52 special education students. And the article goes on to describe some simulated aspects of the store and calls them that, but it says, you know, we have a looks like a f regular front counter, a regular cat register, looks like a magazine rack, shopping carts, stock shelves with toothpaste and so forth. But once again, the thought is that the students with a disability can benefit from a simulation of the real thing versus the real thing. Many of the students, by definition, of the impact of their disability will have difficulty with skill, generalization and transfer. And so as much as you can simulate like a counter or toothpaste or stocking, you know, items stocked on shelves, how is it possible to simulate the really important stuff like relationships with actual CVS managers and employees, interactions with actual CVS customers? How can they simulate the different demands placed on employees during different times of day? How will they simulate new employee training and mentoring? Where are the skilled employees, going back to the imitation and modeling theme, where are the skilled employees to serve as model workers for the students to imitate? And what's the image of all of this to everybody? What's the image that's portrayed to the special education students about themselves? They're the only students invited. And to the regular high school students and to the community at large. So there's no doubt a lot of good intentions behind this, but in truth, it's functionally not going to get people ready to work in a real CVS. So let's just take a similar kind of look at this idea of place and pray. And as noted in the introduction, this has its roots more than 40 years ago, again, with very good intentions, but with things that turned out to be significant design flaws. Now, the workers you see over on the left, I'll talk more about later because Durana, 
the woman in the photo worked for the same organization I did, community employment, and Jim was one of the people we assisted with work. I'll unfold this a bit more later on, but just now, suffice it to say that what we had here are people placed into available work that could readily be found, often in jobs that many people didn't want to do so much, and without a whole lot of attention to it being a fit for the person or a fit for the company. And frankly, with minimal knowledge about the business and the person placed. So this is where place and pray comes from. I mean, we just hope that everything would work out. And a really heavy emphasis on human service involvement or Gerana's involvement related to on-the-job instruction and support. And I'll get to more detail on that in a few minutes. So through an SRV lens, some potential causes for place and pray, you know, um, just the heightened vulnerability for people to be placed in negative roles, such as the object of charity. You know, they should be fortunate to have any job. Anything is fine. Or the object of pity. It's nice for that restaurant to let Jim work here, as well as generally low expectations for kinds of work that people could perform. So some of the potential costs of place and prey um, and that is a heightened vulnerability to people getting jobs that other people don't want to do um, and or jobs that are perceived to be easy, again, around the low expectations. This loss of natural freely given relationships, at least related to instruction, for example, coworkers that typically would provide instruction to new employees are being replaced by human service workers, job coaches, employment specialists, or employment mentors. And this heavy emphasis on job coaches essentially marks people as special employees or clients of the program rather than having the predominant role of employee of the business. Another hazard is that getting stuck in entry-level work, including when it's not a good fit, has other faulty assumptions that follow. Like, well, if you can't do that work that people perceive to be easy, then how could you possibly do something more complicated? When, in, when we know it's actually true that some jobs that are perceived to be easy aren't so much, and some jobs that are pretty complicated actually might be a pretty good fit for people who couldn't do the jobs perceived to be easy. So when we talk about discovery, we'll actually look at a couple of examples of this, a couple uh, real-life stories. So in this next section, I just want to quickly explore the look of some early iterations of open employment and two major program design flaws that were recognized relatively early on and addressed. So here we have two photos, uh, Jim and Gerana again, um, and their employment specialists. So we have Jim and Gerana at Barrister's Restaurant and Tom and Chris at Jefferson County Planning Commission. So these jobs, I know because I was there, <laughs> was helping <laughs> place people in these jobs. These jobs, no doubt, um, were initiated with the best of intentions, you know, um, perhaps with a touch of desperation even. You know, please hire Jim and Tom. We'll be sure that the dishes get washed with Jim and the data corrections are made properly by Tom and we'll provide all the instruction, being that being Chris with Tom or Gerana with Jim. And of course, we started with the job and not the person because that's the best we knew. Now, it's important to say that some good things came to pass. For example, Jim did come to be known as a well-respected employee and did learn additional tasks as time went on. Tom on the right started his first job in 1987 at the age of 40 
He'd been institutionalized most of his life. He moved from an institution that had been a former TB hospital with more than 200 people with disabilities and was able to move into his own home in Germantown. So, you know, some good things happen. However, it is equally important to look at the unintended costs that this approach had by asking what could it have been done better. So I was thinking back to 1981, you know, and um, in addition to open employment and people working, you know, where, where other people worked and us taking a dive into that, realizing it's easier to change and update our methods related to things than it is practices and people. So I just Googled what, what was new in 1981. And so some of you may remember the early PC computers. They ran MS-DOS as the operating system. You had the CTR monitors with these little green letters, and, and you had to know codes to underline things. They had literal floppy disks, you know, five and a quarter inch disks that really were floppy, thus the name. Um, so we wouldn't use one of those nowadays, would we? And this is the first mass-produced portable computer. It weighed 24 pounds. It featured a five-inch display, 64 kilobytes of memory. You get the idea. Also had floppy disks. And this is the first mobile phone. Now, this actually was 1983, not, not 1981. But it, it kind of underlines this idea. None of us would dream of, of trying to use any of these in a productive kind of way nowadays. But it can be really hard to reach beyond uh, some of the practices that were um, prevalent in our services in 1981. So these are the two areas that we're really going to focus on in this presentation. As open employment evolved, we really have gotten much better. And a lot of people said you've studied discovery. So th this will be review and maybe some additional ideas. Hope so. But anyhow, as, as open employment has evolved, we've gotten much better around this idea of job fit, which will be the next section of the presentation. And I'll briefly describe some aspects of discovery. You know, and discovery is a process itself that's been around for about 30 years now but has been instrumental in this, you know, increasing movement to not just placing people in jobs, but thinking about what kind of job would be a fit. And you can look at this photo of, of Daniel working in Dr. Lahaki's office. Sure enough, this is not an arbitrary job placement, but rather a negotiated job, a customized job, one that's involved significant exploration and learning with Daniel and learning about the work to be done in Dr. Lahaki's office. So you see Daniel... Um, entering some data on patient records on the left and handing Dr. Alhaki some, some um, files on the right. Likewise, in open employment, now we devote time to understand how instruction and support typically take place for any new employee learning the same tasks. And then we honor these ways to the fullest extent possible. So we'll talk about this more in the following section of the presentation. Here, Sam is learning autobody tasks with instruction from Keith, the body shop owner. So I'll have more to say about this too, this idea of uh, support that started with the idea of natural supports, an idea that was founded more than 30 years ago and has become much better understood and much more robust over the last 30 years. You've been listening to an Imagine More podcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And go to imaginemore.org.au for more great content.